Thank you for listening to this production from New Life Presbyterian Church. If you'd like to find out more, visit newlifepca.org. Judges chapter 7. What we're doing here is uh, just taking a few Sundays to just think a little bit about the situation that we find ourselves in as a church because uh, most of you know we sent a church plant out just last Sunday. 30 people we sent out from this congregation to plant a church in downtown Muncie. And so uh, I just thought we'd take a few Sundays and just think about that a little bit. And so we talked last week about the importance of church planting and why that's a good thing. Um, Today, you'll see what we're going to talk about. Next Sunday, we're going to talk about how we can use our gifts and service to the church because it's so important now with so many people gone that we have others step forward. Brandon Buller will be here on July 16th. Brandon was our former music director. He's at seminary in Philadelphia, and he will be back here preaching the word to us uh, on the 16th. And as Larry mentioned earlier, we'll be starting a series on Proverbs starting July 23rd. But today here we're in Judges chapter 7. You know, if you've ever looked for a job, I know some of you are are too young and maybe haven't done that. Some of you are in the search for a job maybe now. Maybe you have secure employment and you know what this is like. But you know that dreaded question that you get when you're looking for a job. It's, tell me some of your strengths and tell me some of your weaknesses. Isn't that the hard question that we always face? Tell me some of your weaknesses. What, What do we do with that? How is it that we talk about our weaknesses? It's just so uncomfortable to talk about things that we know are liabilities for us. And we can kind of understand why employers ask for that. They want to see if we're humble. They want to know if we can assess ourselves accurately. But when we talk about our weaknesses, even in that situation, don't we sometimes just feel the tendency to do it in a way that actually makes us look strong? To put a positive spin on the weaknesses, we might say something like, you know, I work too hard. That, that's, that's my weakness. I can't leave a project unfinished. I, I, I try to do too much. I'm too much of a team player. You know, we kind of spin these weaknesses in a way that actually makes us look good. And, and the reason why, I mean, quite frankly, friends, is that we, we hate being weak. We hate our weaknesses. We... We're ashamed of our weaknesses. We feel the necessity to apologize for our weaknesses. In some cases, we just refuse to face those things that we know in us are weak. Very rarely do you find people who are just open about expressing their fears, their insecurities, those things that keep them up at night. We don't talk about those things openly, do we? Even in the church, we don't because we don't want to appear weak. The good news, friends, for you who are Christians, is that the gospel, Christianity, I think, is the only place, the only worldview, the the only religion that would tell us that weakness is a distinct advantage for you. In Christianity, weakness is nothing to apologize for, and in fact, Without weakness, it is impossible to experience the richest and fullest blessings that God has to give to us. And so, again, today, the reason why we're thinking about this is that as a congregation, perhaps we're feeling a a little bit weak here. 
having uh, sent away 30 people. So it's an appropriate thing for us to think about this from the perspective of our congregation, but also from the perspective of each of us individually. And this passage here today is just a, a classic instruction, example of what God does with our weaknesses here in Judges chapter 7. Judges is uh, kind of an unusual book, uh, happens um, after the life of Moses and Israel has been freed from uh, Egypt. Uh, this is before the time of David, so there's no king in the land at this time, and a frequent repeated phrase in Judges is that the people did what was right in their own eyes. So this is kind of a low time for Israel, and um, Judges tells the story of various judges who were raised up to deliver, save Israel from various obstacles and difficulties that they faced. And as we pick this story up here in chapter 7, we're finding Israel facing an army called the Midianites, and Israel is just overwhelmed in this particular situation, feeling very weak, and we're going to see how God deals in such a remarkable way with our weaknesses. So let's take a look at this. If you want to please stand for the reading of God's word, we're going to be reading Judges 7, 1 through 23. It's a bit of a long passage. If you want to remain seated, that's fine. But we'll read these first 23 verses of the chapter. It says, Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, And all the people who were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod. And the camp of Midian was north of them by the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, My own hand has saved me. Now therefore proclaim in the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. Then 22,000 of the people returned, and 10,000 remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water. And the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue, as a dog laps, you shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneels down to drink. And the number of those who lapped, putting their hands to their mouths, was three hundred men. But all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you and give the Midianites into your hand and let all the others go, every man to his home. So the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his tent, but retained the three hundred men, and the camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Arise, go down against the enemy, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Pura, his servant, to the outposts of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, and their camels were without number. 
as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand. And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch when they had just set the watch. And they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the torches and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the 300 trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army, and the army fled as far as Beth Shittah towards Zerera, as far as the border of Abel Mahola by Taboth. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all Manasseh as they pursued after Midian. God in heaven, we ask, bless now the preaching of your word by sending your spirit among us now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You can be seated. Okay, so what we're talking about here this morning is, is the blessing of weakness. That's what I want to show you, how weakness can be a blessing. And, you know, your first reaction to that is how can that possibly be? be? And so there, there's three things, three advantages, three ways that we can be blessed in our weaknesses. And the first one is this. Weakness keeps us humble. And we see this in the first eight verses of chapter 7. So if you want to turn back to just the beginning of this chapter. What an odd little story we have here. Israel preparing for battle and what we would normally expect to hear maybe in a situation like this when an army is preparing for battle is someone to say, wait a minute, we don't have enough troops, we don't have enough resources, somebody send for um, reinforcements. But instead, what God says to Israel in verse 2 is that Israel, you've got too many people. I'm not going to save you with all of these people. We've got to reduce your numbers. We've got to deplete your forces. I can't imagine what that would have sounded like to Gideon, but Gideon wants to obey God, and so uh, that's what happens. And so we have two stages taking place here for the depletion of these forces. And the first stage is mentioned here in verse 3, where God says, Now therefore proclaim to the ears of the people, saying, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilead. So 
What God is saying here is bringing to mind actually a passage in Deuteronomy chapter 20 where a provision is given to the Israelites um, who don't want to fight when the nation is about to enter into battle. And this makes some sense. Generally, if you have really timid, fearful, second-guessing people, it's not really good for the morale of the army. And so, according to Deuteronomy chapter 20, God says, if you've got people in your army, Gideon, who don't want to be here, let them go. And so you can imagine how that might have gone when Gideon announces this, and then, you know, a couple people leave here, and then maybe a handful leave there, and then a group leaves here, but then another group leaves there, and another group leaves here, and the groups just keep getting up and leaving until 22,000 people leave. Not sure that's really what Gideon was hoping to happen, but that's a reflection of how overwhelmed Israel must have felt in the face of this Midianite army. So, 22,000 people leave, and that remains 10,000 people. So, obviously, we had 32,000 troops to begin with, and they've been reduced to 10,000. But then we look at chapter, or excuse me, verse 4. You know, Gideon must say, okay, is that good enough, God? You know, 32,000 down to 10,000, that alone would have been overwhelming, but what does God say to Gideon? Nope, the people are still too many. We've got to eliminate more, God says. And so there's a second method here that God uses um, to reduce the troops, and we see this here starting in verse 4 and in the verses following. And so You know, it's a very strange occurrence here. What God says is, okay, send the people down to the water and let them drink out of of the water. And there's going to be two groups of people based on how they drink the water. And so um, the first group, it says, are those who go down to the water and lap the water with their tongue like a dog. That's in verse 5. Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog you shall set aside. Now in verse 6 he goes on, he says the number of those who lap putting their hands to their mouths. So it's not that these people are bending down and lapping directly out of the water. Apparently these people are gathering water cupped in their hands, standing up and then lapping out of their hands. So that's one group. But the other group is those who kneel down to drink. Verse 5, those who kneel down, also in verse 6. All the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. So we have these two groups of people, and what God says is, those who got that water in their hands and lapped it out of their hands, those are the ones who I want fighting. The rest of them, send them away. And we learn here that those who were lapping out of their hands were just 300 people. Verse 6, the number of those who lapped putting their hands to their mouths was three. Men. So 9,700 soldiers are sent away. And now God finally has an army that he's satisfied with. 300 people. 32,000 down to 300. Now if you look at a lot of commentators and interpreters, they'll look at this passage and they'll try to figure out why is it that God wanted those people who lap the water out of their hands? There must be some some skill or something that God was noticing in them that made them better soldiers, more skilled, more equipped to serve in this battle. 
And so sometimes people will say, well, you know, they were the ones who were standing up. They had the water in their hands, and that made them a little more alert. You know, they could look around, and they could see the enemy. But those who were down on their knees, well, they couldn't see quite as well. So they uh, weren't making themselves as vulnerable, those standing up. And so they're better soldiers, and so that's probably why God chose them. There must be something good in those people. There must be something strong in the way those people were drinking water that would make God want to choose them for the army. I mean, it's unbelievable how many commentators say that. But friends, can can you see how that completely defeats the purpose of the story? God is not looking for strong people. What's going on here? Look at verse 2 and you see the very purpose why God is doing this. God says, the people with you, Gideon, are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand, lest Israel boast over me, saying, my own hand has saved me. That's what God doesn't want. God doesn't want people saying, I'm a more alert soldier. I'm a more responsible soldier. That's why we've defeated the Midianites. I don't think God is looking at any kind of merit or skill or ability in these two groups. He just wants to reduce the numbers. He just wants to get those numbers down so Israel is in a state of complete and total helplessness. That's what God wants. There's no particular skill in these 300. Why is God doing this? Again, it's right there in verse 2. So that Israel will not say, my own hand has saved me. So that Israel will not be puffed up in pride. So that Israel will be laid low and humbled as they are prepared to see a mighty God work in their midst. The blessing of weakness, friends, is it keeps us humble. And I know you might say, well, that's a small consolation, Bob. I mean... I don't really like being humbled. I mean, I'll I'll give up a little humility for a few successes and skills and abilities. But friends, if you knew how much God detested pride, you would be dancing on your feet at every effort God takes to humble you and reduce your self-reliance. Friends, the, the most significant challenges that you will face in your life spiritually speaking and with regard to your Christian growth with regard to your character the most significant challenges in your life are not going to be the setbacks and the trials and the challenges the most significant challenges to you are going to be your successes your victories and the praise that you receive from others And the reason why is because all of those things tend to puff us up. They they just tend to make us think so highly of ourselves. They tend to increase our addiction to ourselves. And God won't allow that to happen in his people. And that's what he's doing here. He's humbling Israel. Uh, You know, as we look to the New Testament, friends, we we see how related this is to the gospel. Do, Do you know, friends, that you cannot be a Christian unless you come to God in weakness. The people who become Christians are not those who come and say, God, look at how well I've been performing lately. Look at what a good person I am. Look at how often I go to church. Look at how much money I give to the poor. Look at how often I read my Bible. Look at my strengths, God, and save me. That's not the way it works. 
when people become Christians, it's when they come in their weakness. When, they, when you realize that the only thing you have to offer in contribution to your salvation is your sin. And you offer it up to God and you allow, receive from God what he has done with it. That is, he's nailed it to the cross when Jesus died on Calvary and he has risen from the dead to overcome your sin. And that is what you realize is your only hope for salvation. That's what God wants. That's what God is trying to bring all of you to, a sense of humility and weakness. Look what it says in Ephesians chapter 2. By grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's not because of your strength. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Isn't it interesting how close verse 9 there reads to chapter 7, verse 2 in Judges. Lest Israel would boast over me. God sends weakness into our life to humble us. So here we are. We're New Life Presbyterian. And um, you know, like I already mentioned, we sent 30 people out last week. Uh, it seems like every Sunday we've got somebody else kind of moving away. We've got 20 plus or so people moving away this, this summer. Um, I mean, since 2011, uh, our attendance has been pretty plateaued. It's, I mean, it's really declined since 2000. Since we've been in this new sanctuary, our attendance has gone down. <laughs> I think probably most of you have, have noticed that. It's interesting how similar our situation is to Israel's, right? I mean, Israel's numbers were depleted a whole lot more than ours, but it seems like our numbers have been kind of depleted. Why is God doing that? What do you think he's doing? Well, if this passage applies to our situation, maybe God's humbling us as a congregation. Maybe God wants us to let go of a dependence that maybe we have on our own efforts, our own hard work, our own intelligence, our own theological rightness. I don't know. Maybe what God is doing in the life of new life is just moving us to a place of utter and complete helplessness before God. If that's what's going on, that's a good thing. Regardless of how many people are here, that's a good thing. But how about you individually? How are you feeling today? Are you coming here today feeling weak? Are you thinking to yourself, I'm just, I'm not as smart as my friends, I, I'm not as pretty, I'm not as good looking, I'm not as clever, I'm not as skilled, I'm I'm not as talented. I I just feel like I'm always the weak one. Maybe you're, you're, you're dealing with constant illness and your body feels weak. You're getting older in life and your body's feeling more tired and you just feel weak. Friends, listen, here's what the scripture says. God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It, it is good to be humbled in whatever way God decides to do it. And we've certainly seen that clearly here in Judges 7. So that's the first blessing of weakness, keeps us humble. Second blessing is this, weakness leads us to worship. So let's see how this works. This is verses 9 through 15. Now, one thing we know about Gideon is that Gideon was not a particularly like, strong, bold leader. He, he was not a cocky, kind of self-assured, uh, you know, macho kind of guy. That, that was not Gideon. We, we know that because we see back here in Judges chapter 6 when God chose Gideon to lead 
Israel. He says, the Lord turned to Gideon and said, go in this might of yours and save Israel from the hand of Midian. Do not I send you. And here's how Gideon responds. He says, please, Lord, how can I save Israel? Behold, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh and I'm the least in my father's house. You know, very similar to Moses' response to God, right? When God called Moses to lead out the Israelites, Gideon very similar. He says, why are you choosing me, God? I'm weak. I'm small. I'm inadequate. But what Paul, or what God says to Gideon in chapter, in verse 9, he says, go to the Midianites. Now, something I want to clarify here, make sure that this is understood. Verse 9, look at that again. Chapter 7, verse 9, arise, go down against the cap, camp. That This is Gideon in his weakness. The troops have been reduced. It would be very easy, I think, maybe for some of us to conclude that since we're kind of weak and maybe not as strong as others, that therefore that's an excuse for me not to do anything. Like that's an excuse for me to be lazy spiritually. Like that's an excuse for me not to obey. Other Christians can do that. Those are the good Christians. I'm a weak Christian, so therefore I don't have to follow him. That's not what's going on here, is it? Gideon is weak. The troops have been reduced. And nonetheless, God says, Gideon, you've got to go. You've got to go into the camp. And Gideon does that, and he obeys. But for our purposes here, that's a little bit of a tangent, a little bit of an aside. Gideon is not a strong, cocky person. But if we go on to verse 10, look how God responds to this. God knows that about Gideon. He knows Gideon's weakness. So in verse 10, he says, Gideon, if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant. So here's, here's God. He's got this servant, and this servant is kind of frail, lacking confidence, insecure. God knows it and reacts to him with great sensitivity, with great care. God doesn't say, Gideon, you know, suck it up, man. You're a man. Let's go. You know, he doesn't have that kind of an attitude. There's a gentleness here. There's a willingness of God to be patient with Gideon in his weakness. A commentator named Del Ralph Davis said it like this. God is not so strict as to be harsh when we tremble. He does not ridicule us for our fears. He never mocks us. Because we're fragile. It's a wonderful thing about the God that we worship. So so here's what God does. He encourages his weak, insecure, lacking confidence servant. And we see this in verses 10 through 14. So God sends this guy named Pura along with Gideon into the Midianite camp. And in verse 12, (coughs) excuse me, in verse 12 we see how Many Midianites there are, the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance, their camels without numbers as the sand that is on the seashore. It's just a you know, hyperbole just describing how overwhelming these Midianite forces are. So now we get a little better picture of why it is Israel is so scared, why 22,000 people left, huge forces here. But what God says is, Gideon, with Pura, go down to the camp, and, and I'm going to encourage you there. And so it, here's what happens. We see this in uh, verse 13. So here's Gideon and Pura. That they come in, and they notice there's a couple of Midianite soldiers, and, and they're talking. And 
they overhear what they're saying. And so look at verse 13. When Gideon came, behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade. And he said, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so it fell down and turned it upside down. So here's Gideon and Pura, and they hear this, two soldiers talking. And then the soldier that's hearing about the dream, he has an interpretation. Now, at this time, interpretation of dreams was considered to be authoritative, uh, much more so than today. Typically today, people say they have a dream. You know, you're not really that concerned about it. But that wasn't the case then. It was considered much more definitive. And the guy who hears this dream, he says, well, here's, here's the interpretation of it. Verse 14, there is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, the man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian, Midian and all the camp. And so Gideon hears this, this fearful servant. God sends him down there just so that he can overhear that conversation and receive encouragement and be just built up just a little bit. And Gideon is, is just thrilled with this. And then we see his response in verse 15. Look what he says. Verse 15. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream, he worshipped. Gideon, in all of his weakness, receives from God this blessing, and it leads him to worship. That, that, that's what our weakness often does. In our weakness, we're so much more sensitive and open to encouragement from God through his word, through prayer, through brothers and sisters in Christ, through cards that might be sent, through a phone call that might be made, and our spirits are lifted, and, and we worship. We go from our weakness to worship. Friends, here's, here's a big problem for all of us who are sinners, and that includes everybody in this room. We all have a tendency to self-absorption. All of us have a tendency to be consumed with ourselves. Now, you might say, oh, that's not me. Well, let me give you this little exercise. Let's say I come to you and I have a photo of your, like, ninth grade class. And, and you know you're in the photo. And I, and I give you that photo. And you know your picture is in there. Who's the first person you're looking for in that photo? You're not even looking for the girl you had a crush on or the guy you had a crush on. You're not looking at your teacher. You're looking for you. Come on, admit it. <laughs> That's the first person you're looking for. We all have this kind of tendency to be absorbed and consumed with ourselves. It's a kind of a, kind of a self-worship. And weakness kind of weans us off our self-worship, our self-obsession, and turns us outward to find someone who is truly worthy of being worshipped. That, that's a great blessing of weakness. Um, many of you know Muhammad Ali, a great boxer from, from years ago, passed away recently. Muhammad Ali was one of the greatest boasters in history. I mean, he would just go around saying, I am the greatest. That was one of his classic quotes. I am the greatest. Constantly consumed with himself, lifting himself up, exalting himself. And then Muhammad Ali got Parkinson's disease. And I found this, what he said after he'd been sick for a while. God gave me Parkinson's syndrome to show me I'm not the greatest. 
He is. Now, Muhammad Ali, I think, had a different God in mind. I I believe he was a Muslim. You know, I don't know what his beliefs were later on uh, in his life. But, But the point is that the weakness that came into his life through Parkinson's disease weaned him off his self-absorption. It, it humbled him, and it turned him outward to look for one who is truly worthy of worship. And so that's what Gideon does. In his weakness, he comes, God encourages him, and then he, is, uh, then he worships in chapter 15. But, but now look what happens here in verses 16 through 18. After Gideon worships, Look what he says. He divides the 300 men into three companies. He puts trumpets into their hands. Verse 17, he says to them, look at me and do likewise. And then he lays out this plan. Now remember, this is the guy who was afraid to lead. This is the guy who said to God, I I don't want to do this. This is a guy lacking self-confidence. And now he goes before his troops and he says, watch me, everybody. Do like I do. I am your leader. Follow me. Where did he get that strength all of a sudden? Where, where did that boldness come from? This was the shy, reserved Gideon consumed with his failures. And I would suggest to you it came as a result of worshiping. Friends, that, that's why we come here on Sunday mornings. We don't come in here every Sunday morning in our strength. We come in our weakness. But hopefully we leave every Sunday a little stronger. A little stronger. And it, if you're not in worship privately and corporately on a regular basis, you're not going to sense that strength that comes as a result of worshiping God. And that's precisely what happened in Gideon's life. So weakness leads to worship. It's another good thing about weakness. One more thing. Weakness gives God all the glory. The best thing about weakness. It gives God all the glory. So, verses um, 16 through 23. Here's Gideon's battle plan. He divides up his 300 people into three groups of 100, and he gives to every man a trumpet and jars with torches on the inside. And in verse 19, we see how the battle plan is executed. Gideon and the hundred man, men, they go down to the camp. And in verse 20, we see that they blow the trumpets and they break the jars and they cry out. The end of verse 20 there, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They offer up this kind of battle cry. And we might look at this and think, what in the world is going on here? What are these guys doing? And I think what is happening here is Gideon and his men are trying to create an atmosphere of chaos and confusion. This is the middle watch of the night, it says. This would have been about 10 o'clock. A lot of the Midianite soldiers would have been asleep at this time. So they're waking up and they're a little bit groggy. We've got all these camels around. They're probably disturbed. They're running all over the place. And there's just this sense of chaos And this might kind of seem like, oh, come on, how can that happen? I I remember when I was at college at Ball State at Palmer Hall, um, the middle of the night there was a a trial, like fire drill. And so I hear this fire drill go off. It's 2 a.m. And I get up. It's February. It's freezing cold out. 
and all I can remember is the next thing I knew is I'm downstairs outside with a winter coat on and my shorts that I've been sleeping on still on, just my shorts. So my legs are freezing. I got a coat on, but my legs are freezing. So I didn't think to put on any long pants. Everybody else had long pants on that I could see. But there's me in my coat and my shorts. It was 2 a.m. I was confused. I didn't know what to do. There's this sound blaring in the hallway. And I wasn't thinking clearly. And I think that's exactly what's happening here. The Midianites, they're just, they're overwhelmed. They're confused. And then in verse 22, we see what God does. Verse 22. They blew the 300 trumpets. And the Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. Now, this is something that God is doing. God is at work in, in this situation. And remember, Gideon doesn't know this. When he comes up with this plan, he doesn't know what God's going to do. And, and in fact, what are the Israelites doing? They're basically doing nothing. Verse 21, they stood in their place around the camp. That's what they did. You know, so much for this idea of gifted, skilled soldiers. They're exhibiting no military ability whatsoever. They're standing there. And God comes in, sovereignly turns the soldiers in the Midianite army against each other. They're killing each other, and then they're fleeing from the camp. And at the end of verse 23, we see Israel pursuing Midian in victory. Israel, 300 people, total helplessness, gaining victory over this imposing army. Who's getting the glory there? certainly isn't Israel. It's God. And God's work is exalted in their midst, and their faith is increased, and they're led to worship and thank him. Friends, it, it, here's the point, and I hope you get this through this passage. Your weakness is not a liability. It's not a burden. Your weakness is not a problem for God. It's not an obstacle to his using you. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Your weakness is an advantage. It's an opportunity. It is the gateway to God being glorified in your life. Your weakness. I want you to think about that. What is the thing in your life that you hate the most? What do you hate the most about yourself? What is it about yourself that disappoints you the most? Your lack of intelligence, your, your, your appearance, something in your past. What is it that just brings you down, covers you with shame, guts your confidence? That's the place where God's glory is going to be shown in your life. That's where God's going to show up. You think God's going to use all of your wonderful skills and, and, and sense of humor and intelligence and abilities. God says, I don't need that. I don't need your abilities. I need your weakness. And I can do great things through your weakness. Isn't this exactly what Paul says here, 2 Corinthians 12? I will boast gladly in my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, so he may be glorified. For the sake of Christ, then I'm content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities. For when I'm weak, then I'm strong. 
Boy, man, those are words of life, aren't they? I love that passage. I feel so weak so much. I feel so inadequate. I feel so insufficient to be your pastor. And I'm not saying that because it makes for a good ending to this sermon. It's the truth. And this passage is life for me. And I hope it is for you too. There's a guy named Charles Colson. Some of you know about He was um, um, wrapped up in the whole Watergate um, scandal back in the 70s. Charles Colson got convicted, sent to prison, but, you know, a very, you know, a high-ranking guy in, in the government at that time and uh, became a Christian. And so Colson, later in his life, he wrote this. It was not my success that God had used to enable me to help those in, in prison. He had a prison ministry, so he was in prisons a lot, ministering to inmates. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use in my life. He chose the one thing in which I could not glory for his glory. He chose the thing I couldn't be proud of so that he could be exalted. When I had my lowest point in my life, that's when God was really able to start working in my life. Friends, hang on to that. As a church, we need to hang on to that. We're weakened, yeah, but God is great. God is glorified in, in our weakness. And of course, we have a Savior who just, what, what greater display of weakness than a Savior hanging on a cross helplessly, nailed to that wood, shedding blood? What greater display of weakness is there than that? And yet, our Savior was resurrected to atone for our sin, to turn away the wrath of the Father, and to crush the head of the serpent in great victory. That's strength and weakness. That's a God who's mighty to save, and that's the God that we're going to sing about now. So let's stand and prepare to sing. Father in heaven, we give you glory, thanks. You are mighty, you are strong, and although we are weak, we depend on you, we look to you. Use our weakness, Lord to make yourself great. In Jesus' name we pray.